Welcome to the So Weird Podcast. I'm Emily. I'm Kat. I'm Zach. And tonight we have a very special guest with us. This is a longtime listener of the podcast, one of our biggest supporters and earliest supporters. Please welcome Lauren. Hey, Lauren. Hello. Good to see <laughs> most of you. Yeah, it's so good to have you on. And, and Lauren is joining us tonight for a book discussion of the first book in the So Weird book series, Family Reunion. So Family Reunion um, and these books, I actually discussed on our first episode of the podcast, which was when we were reviewing the episode for Family Reunion. But I didn't really get too in-depth about the books because I didn't think too many people would be interested in it, to be honest with you. But, you know, in in the latest uh, months, we've had a lot of people saying, hey, wait, there are books. And uh, also uh, people expressing interest in going into a little more in depth on them. So that's what we're going to be doing tonight. Um, Just overall general thoughts on the book. Like, what did you think about reading a book covering an episode of So Weird? Well, um, the main takeaway I have from this is that it must have been an interesting assignment taking a 20 minute episode of television, like a 24 minute episode of television and trying to expand it into a 141 page book, which, you know, is pretty short as far as books go, but still a lot longer than your average television script. Mm-hmm. Um, and the main thing I noticed, uh, I think the main way they were able to expand the script to book length is um, the author, who is a Kathy East Dubowski, who I looked her up and she has written a lot of little tie-in books like this for Full House, Mary-Kate and Ashley Olsen, uh, Serena the Teenage Witch, Gilmore Girls, Rugrats, Thundercats, uh, tons of hundreds of these things. Um, and uh, the main uh, way I think they expanded the story is by giving us flashbacks throughout the book to what the little ghost boy was thinking before he became a ghost. And that takes up, I think there are about four of those chapters that are told from his perspective. And beyond that, uh, I mean, I guess, as I was saying off mic, I didn't get a chance to rewatch the episode before we record. I really wanted to, but this week's been crazy. Um, And I'm sure you guys will point out every little difference between the book and the episode, because I'm sure you guys are way more familiar with it than I am. There were a couple of little differences that stuck out to me, but overall, I mean, I guess if I was just to, to give my, like a short, opinion on the book is, um, you know, it's okay. I mean, the, the prose is pretty simplistic. It's obviously something written for younger children, but uh, it was kind of interesting. It really didn't give us any more like insight into the so weird cast or lore, which I was a little disappointed in. I was hoping for a little more insight into the characters, but um, it was okay. You know, it took me about two hours to read the whole book. So it wasn't really you know, a big deal. <laughs> Yeah, it's definitely a very easy read. Um, what do you think, Lauren? Novelizations can be a hit or miss with me, just from <laughs> going off of past experiences. Um, some can be very straightforward. Some can be a bit more innovative, depending on how they're written. As far as the dialogue goes, it may as well have been copy and pasted directly from the screenplay. Really, what intrigued me about this was the minutiae of it that I'm sure we're going to get into as we go along. But yeah, I think it's okay. 
And I know, Kat, you were in on those discussions that we had in the early episodes about the book tie-ins. Um, so did the book surprise you or did it kind of meet the expectations I may have, have um, given you? It <laughs> felt like a little bit below expectations for me, just in terms of readability. There's a lot of jumping around between perspectives and just like the low reading level kind of made it seem lesser than compared to the TV show, which I always looked up to as like being mature for its audience. But mm-hmm. I did enjoy the book for what it is and the little descriptors we get of the characters. And it's interesting to see these characters painted through the lens of somebody else where we're not the ones really interpreting the characters. We're watching somebody else interpret the characters. And I don't always agree with the way that the author describes the characters because it's like, this is not the Jack I know and love and I'm sure I'm going to get into this later. Mm-hmm. It's very interesting to read. Yeah. So as I said, I'd already read this book uh, five years ago now, I guess, uh, when we started the podcast. I guess I my opinion of it is a little higher now than it was. I feel like having to actually go through and take notes while reading, uh, I appreciate a little more of some of the little finer points of what the author wrote about the characters and, and getting like a little insight into their perspectives. Because as you said, Kat, they actually do go um, away from these perspective at times, which I found kind of interesting. But uh, we will get into more of that as we go along, I'm sure. Just before we get started, uh, this book was the first book published, and it was published in April 2000. And of course, the episode aired in January of 1999. So just something to keep in mind as we go along. I took a note before we even got to the first page. Uh, I wanted to mention the synopsis on the back of the book, which reads, a ghost with a mission. When Fee sees the ghost of a young boy at the band's gig in Chicago, she's determined to find out why he's haunting the club. She does research on the internet and figures out that he died in a boat disaster in 1915. Even though Jack and Clue think she's crazy, Fee convinces them to help her find out what the ghost wants, or they'll be haunted forever. So I know that these books meant for children have like these kind of dramatic hooks at the end of, in the synopses a lot of the times, but haunted forever. Did you get that impression that she, <laughs> Jack and Clue felt that way reading this? Not at all. Yeah, that makes it sound a lot more threatening than it actually is. <laughs> Yeah, just just something that kind of made me chuckle because I didn't get that impression from the episode or from the book. Yeah, they, they have to make the synopsis <laughs> a little more dramatic to catch people who pick this up in a bookstore or whatever. Yeah, but I have to say this uh, there was clickbait. Right. <laughs> and I have to say the um, the Disney Channel logo down here with Jack and Molly and Fee and the mouse ears makes me super nostalgic, though. Yes, oh, I yeah. love that photo. <laughs> Very cute. And also, if you all don't have never seen this book, the cover of the book is a press photo of um, actually a mirror image of a press photo of Clue, the Molly and Jack in front of the tour bus. So it's it's really cool. Um, I say mirror image because you can see that the logo on the bus is backwards. One of those <laughs> details that nobody but the people on the show would notice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the book, um, you know, much like the episode starts with the prologue. Uh, and it's written from Fee's perspective. Uh, so it's actually a note from Fiona is what it's called. 
And, you know, uh, it gives us a little more insight into uh, the Phillips family that we don't get from the show. So I think you, Lauren and I, and Kat, we all took notes on the very first page. (laughs) So the first thing I noted was that Fee gives a little explanation of her name um, and the origins. She says that her name means comely and fair. And her dad named her that because she was a beautiful baby. Now, in the show, Fee says that she was named after her great-grandmother. So uh, I don't think her father actually named her at all. But what did you think of that, Lauren? Continuity error right out of the gate. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, while we're still here early, I think I'm just going to say straight up, I had a feeling there was going to be continuity errors. So as I saw more and more of them, I'm like, okay, I'm not even going to bother with that because that's <laughs> this is the way with novelizations. Um, I mean, like, shout out to the four shadow alerts regarding how these Irish heritage plays into all this. But otherwise, yeah, it's a little strange, especially since this came out, I think, after Banshee Years. Yeah, I think. I'm not actually sure. Do you all know? <laughs> well, Banshee aired in November 1999. This came out in 2000. Then, yeah, definitely. Didn't think of that. Kat, you picked up something else on the first page you want to talk about? Yeah. (laughs) So while Fee's introducing her name, she has a line saying that Jack says Fee is the perfect name for me because it sounds like somebody from another universe. And I thought that line, it sounded like something Fee would say. I could imagine Cara DeLizia saying it. And it goes so well with the opening scene in the TV show where we see Jack tormenting Fee by having that little alien pop up. So I thought that was a perfect line. Yeah, it's a good one. Yeah, and when I um, when I started reading this, I really liked that opening chapter, uh, the little prologue here, because it's so similar to the opening narrations on the episodes and I was really kind of hoping the entire book would be written like that Mm -hmm. um I I thought it would have been really neat if the entire book was um in the first person from Fiona but uh, of course they didn't do that right okay and then after he keeps going on about her family uh and she mentioned she says did I mention that my mom is a rock star well maybe not a star yet And, you know, I don't know if that's a totally fair thing to say. Uh, Molly was a member of the well-known band PKB. Uh, I believe they went double platinum, according to the show canon. So um, I I don't know how I feel about that line. On her own, maybe she's not a rock star. I don't know. What do you all think? (laughs) Yeah, that that stuck out to me, too. I'm thinking like, and, and, you know, okay, so the obvious reason here is that this was probably written pretty early in the show's existence. Um, I mean, I don't know what the timeline is exactly, but I can only assume that either the writer wasn't informed of all of the backstory or that it didn't exist yet. Um, but yeah, that stuck out to me too, that the opening prologue makes it sound like Molly is an up and coming performer instead of an established one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I definitely got the feeling that the author of this novel didn't watch the entire series and probably only saw this one episode. <laughs> So Mm -hmm. like a lot of the stuff, it seems like it was just her personal headcanons and it definitely goes against the grain of what we've come to know about these characters. I thought it was really worded for sure, but I also give the the benefit of the doubt in that, you know, I think the height of Molly's fans was probably before V's time. So she doesn't really have that memory of when they were on the road and killing it on stages. So maybe that's why she perceives it that way. 
Yeah, maybe that that's a very good point, actually. Okay, and then on our very first page, we get a title drop. It says, Jack thinks I'm so weird. And uh, that's not the last time we'll hear that. In fact, I'm pretty sure the last line of the book is something about life being so weird. So it <laughs> it happens a few times, a few more times. Oh, yes, Seven and then right on the next page, there's another line. It's so <laughs> weird what happens. And I also have to pick up this part just because it's so wrong. It says, you see, this was not long after the Titanic sank in the Atlantic Ocean in 1914. The Titanic sank in 1912. Oh. So this is just flat out wrong about like an actual fact. Oh, jeez. can't trust them with actual facts. How are we supposed to trust them with our fictional characters? Though and about the title drop, um, yeah, it, it, I think I counted about seven or eight title drops throughout the book, including one from Jack, I'm pretty sure, a little later on, so... Yeah, I think that's what Lauren was saying, too. Yeah, oh, okay. I counted seven. Once I saw the first three in the prologue, I'm like, all right, how many more are there? <laughs> yeah, they definitely won't wait to him on that. So at, at this point, uh, Fee kind of goes into the backstory of the Eastland disaster. It is very similar to what she talks about in the show, but it does give a little more context. She mentioned that the... You know, they added the lifeboats to the Eastland, and part of the reason they did this, apparently was because of the Titanic and what happened on the Titanic. Maybe there was a law change that, you know, you needed to have lifeboats for every passenger on the ship. And anyway, the, but the lifeboats actually made the Eastland too top heavy, uh, which is why it tipped over uh, too sudden. And that, you know, there were too many people to save. And, uh, you know, at that time, you know, it all happened so fast. So I actually appreciated that because watching the opening, I was like, okay, how did all of these people die? Like, it, it doesn't look that deep, you know, I, it is deep, but it didn't in the pictures, you know, I didn't totally understand what was going on. So I, I appreciated that information. The prologue ends and we move on to chapter one. I wasn't expecting the first chapter to be told from the perspective of the boy, so that was definitely a surprise. And I quickly realized this is not going to end well for him, so this is potentially morbid. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. Uh, yeah, Kat, what did you have to say about that i think it's interesting that in the brian's chapter on the tv show we only saw brian and a couple flashes of his parents whereas here they kind of scope out the world a little bit more we have brian first having a dream where he's thinking about emily johnson this girl he has a crush on mr holtzman who's giving the family a ride and part of it just feels like this is a lot of wasted time for characters that are completely irrelevant to the story, where it's like, I'm not sure why they're building all of this into it, when we don't care about these people at all. And I guess it's kind of intended to make the readers feel more for Brian and set up the excitement for the Eastland. But while I was reading it, I was like, who are these people? Why are we wasting time on them? No, I mean, actually, I, I think that was kind of interesting. It was... Like I said, just from a practical perspective, I can see how the author of the book looked at the 20 some minute episode of the TV show and thought like, okay, what can I expand on here? And immediately thought of like, oh, well, the backstory of the little ghost boy is something that the actual episode doesn't really touch upon much at all. So that's something that I can build on. Um, so I thought that was, you know, interesting. Was it necessary? I guess not, but um, is it what I expected to read when I opened to the first chapter of a So Weird book? Maybe not. Is that page space that could have been used to expand more on Fiona or Molly or those characters? Probably, but 
I don't know. I thought it was kind of interesting. You know, it it added a little more depth to the story. Yeah, that's one of the highlights of being able to read the book and that you get these details that we don't see on screen. I think if anything, it's to show that he had a life before it was tragically cut short. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, yeah, I agree. I think it's just to kind of, you know, make it more make it more tragic when we find out what happens because he was a real person. He wasn't just a name as he is in the show, it seems like at the end, <laughs> but um, yeah, he, he was a real person and he had real aspirations and real dreams and, and real people he knew and, and all that. So I agree with what you all were saying about that. And then also to continue on with Brian's tragedy, the chapter ends with a line saying, if he hurried, they'd be among the lucky ones who got to sail on the Eastland. And thinking about what Lauren wrote about it being morbid, this just seemed like a big oof to me. Because you read that when you know how this story is going to end. And it's like, ooh, he's not that lucky after all. Yeah, mm. it's a, a lot of, um, you know, kind of ironic uh, foreshadowing in the Brian chapters, for sure. Melissa actually joined in to give us some notes that, as she was reading. She couldn't join us tonight, but... She pointed out that on page 16 of this chapter, uh, Fee is apparently stated to be 14, which is another inconsistency with the show because in the episode Rebecca, which is supposed to be later in the season, uh, she's said to be 13. Ah, (laughs) We love those inconsistencies. Yeah, and also another thing I noticed is, um, so according to the book, Uh, She has a poster of the movie Lie to Me on her bedroom Mm -hmm. wall. Now, I know you'll know the answer to this, my uh, so weird obsessive friends here. But is that poster in the show? Yes, I was going to mention that. Actually, Lauren had uh, made a comment about that as well. But it actually is in the show. I just rewatched the episode a few nights ago. And yeah, it's there. But I believe you pointed out that there was something different about it. Uh, yeah. She, she's, yeah. What did you in say? In the book, it's referred to as a movie when it's an album. Mm. Ah. Yeah. I, I don't know why. And I also noted, like, if I were to look up the album, would that give any indication as to who he is as a character? I listened to maybe about two thirds of the album on YouTube before I stopped. And let's put it this way I can see the child of Molly Phillips listening to this artist even though it's a different genre. Mm-hmm. I, I assume the assumption there is that Fiona is a, you know, teenage girl and she has crushes on handsome male famous celebrity people. I don't know what Johnny Lang looks like, but I'm assuming he was a idol at the time. I don't know. I've never even heard of him until I wrote this book. <laughs> she also had a matchbox 20 poster up in the not in the book but in the show okay um so she she just likes music i don't know um and she has varied tastes yeah so anyway i forgot to mention we are we you know move on from brian's perspective and now we're we're in that scene that's the same scene basically that's in the show where fee is on her laptop and on her website and then you know the boys are playing guitar in the room next door and all that so um did you notice anything different about that scene or or what kind of notes did you all make well my main notice with uh, any all the descriptions of the internet and the website in this book are hilarious because they're just so antiquated and awkward and it just 
becomes very, very obvious to me that the person who wrote this book probably had not spent a lot of time on any message boards or reading any emails uh, back in 1999 or 2000 or so when this was written, probably. <laughs> yeah. Lauren mentioned before that a lot of this comes out like almost verbatim from the screenplay and from this scene, you do get a lot of that. But one thing that I found interesting was that there's this descriptor that when she gets the UFO sighting video, she muses, oh, maybe it would make Jack stop making fun of me. And it kind of gives Fee this motivation that we don't see in the TV show. So I thought that was kind of cool. And then... We also got a description of what Fee's message board includes. So we got aliens, Area 51, Afterlife, Angels, and Batboy. And those are all topics that they tackled in the show, except for Batboy, which just makes me wonder, like, what would an episode of So Weird with a Batboy look like? Okay, that could so be some does, really cool fan fiction fodder. Does anybody remember Batboy but me? Nope. Okay, mm-hmm. all wonderful. I get to, I get to educate. So back in the day, there was a um, newspaper tabloid. There there was a um, like supermarket checkout lane tabloid called the weekly world news. And this was literally fake news. It was made up. It was comedic, satirical sometimes, but it was sort of intentionally silly, fake, supernatural kind of stories. And they had a reoccurring character that was called Batboy, who was a humanoid bat hybrid creature that was found in the caverns of my home state, West Virginia. And uh, he kind of became the Weekly World Nudes mascot. And at one point in time, kind of around the late 90s, early 2000s, Batboy basically became a, a meme before memes really existed. And um, there was merchandise and T-shirts, and there was even an off-Broadway musical about Bat Boy. So it was a thing. It was a big thing. Well, I wouldn't. I don't know how big it was, but yes, it was a thing. Okay, that's cool. All right, and then also a thing is Clue and Fee, <laughs> and I mean that in terms of people shipping them because people have always shipped Clue and Fee, and I know that because I used to ship Clue and Fee. So one thing that made me kind of excited reading this book is that there's a line about Clue was her friend too, but when it came down to the bottom line, it was a guy thing. He had to hang his hat on Jack's side of the fence. And I thought it was so wholesome that Clue is solidified here as being not just Jack's best friend, but Fee's friend as well. Yeah, that was sweet. So the end of this chapter, it's basically, it lines up perfectly with the show, but the very end cliffhanger line of the chapter is suddenly her whole room lurched. I I don't know, that just kind of made me think about the episode. And, you know, I've watched the family reunion episode so much now. um, And it's hard to kind of put myself in the perspective of someone who's watching it for the first time. But, you know, I guess I kind of appreciate with that line you know, it's it's a clever way to introduce the bus to uh, viewers and to readers. The fact that they are actually on a bus by having the bus kind of toss and turn a little bit. Of course, if you've seen the intro to the show, then hopefully you pick up picked up on the fact that there's a tour bus and that that's what they're probably on. But still, I appreciated that chapter ending. Yeah, the bus, the fourth member of the Phillips family. Um, there are a couple of chapters that end on kind of silly, awkward little cliffhangers like that. And that really reminded me of like Goosebumps, where most of the chapters end on really obvious, silly cliffhangers like that. Um, okay. And then the next chapter, it just continues right, right on to when Molly comes into the room. And then Molly's introduction 
gave me pause because they described Molly as having a short haircut and awesome clothes that made her look more like the kid's big <laughs> sister than their mom. And I thought that description was kind of stretching it a little bit because I've never seen Molly looking more like their big sister than their mom. She always seemed like a rock star mom to me. The author was just trying to establish that Molly is a hip, cool rock cool star mom. mom. Yeah. 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 They also mention that her mom had been a popular musician in the 70s before Jack and Fee were born. But again, the show establishes that PKB was still popular when Rick died and Fee was born in 1985, according to John Cooksey. So that would have been like 88 when he died. So uh, she was a popular musician in the 80s, too. Anyway, just little picky stuff like that. Uh, all <laughs> right. I think we've determined that the books are set in a, a, di- a slightly alternate universe from the TV show, guys. Okay. <laughs> yes. But, you know, that's one of the things is that, you know, you view, uh, what is it, like tier one and tier two canon? Well, where does the book fit into this? You know, if it's so contradictory and, you know, maybe maybe ways that aren't necessarily that important, but still. Well, well no, not important at all. Um, <laughs> and, well, you know, obviously the TV show is Earth 616 and the book is Earth 699 or something. I don't know. <laughs> uh, Lauren, you made a comment about the her bedroom, these bedroom. Yeah, the passage says her current tiny bedroom was custom built into the guts of her tour bus that carried her mom's van from one gig to the next. I've never heard of a custom built room on a tour bus before, but (laughs) why do I know? I've never been on tour bus, but I don't know. Like, is that a thing? Is that something you could do on vehicles? I, I don't know. Maybe she's, they're just, the author's just trying to come up for an excuse for why Fee's room is so different from what a tour bus actually normally is like. Yeah, you know, the book really um, made it obvious to me that it is literally impossible for their rooms to exist inside this bus. Like it just, it, the layout of the bus makes absolutely no sense at all. It's a magical bus that is <laughs> got alien technology on it and is bigger on the inside than it is on the outside. There's just no, I, you know, I've been inside buses before. I've been inside of large buses before. There's just no room for individual rooms inside of a bus. So the bus is magic. Conclude it. <laughs> or a TARDIS. Yeah, something yep. like that. So uh, B, I guess, goes into research mode about Chicago because that's where they're going. And Lauren, you had a comment about that. It says here, we looked up Chicago on the web, land acquired from the Native Americans in 1795. I'm sorry, no. <laughs> this, is just one, <laughs> this is just one of those aspects that just does not age well in time. And that's maybe one of the most annoying things about So Weird, especially in the third season. It treats Native Americans like a monolith when they're not. And this is factually incorrect because we all know what really happened way back when. So, mm-hmm. no, the correct, it should probably say land stolen from the mm-hmm. Kikapu, Peoria, Kaskaskia, Potawatomi, and Miami tribes. Those are the territories yeah. Chicago is based on. Enough said. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I, I had that thought, too. It's like land acquired from the Native Americans. Well, I, I guess that's one way of putting it. Um, <laughs> Very PC way of putting it. 
Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I think it's possible that a 140 page children's book that was probably written in a week from 2000 is not um, something we should really expect a biting, insightful historical insight from, you know? <laughs> okay. So after that, yeah, it goes a little into Ned. Uh, yes. What? So we're starting to get introduced to some of the other characters as well. And Fee makes a comment about how she didn't envy their bus driver right now. And this is the page before they introduce Ned, which made me think, like, is Ned not the bus driver in this book? Because they never mention Ned as driving the bus here. Yeah, they don't mention him driving to the graveyard at the end, I guess. No. No. Mm, I don't know. And I can't remember the other books. But, you know, the books were written by different writers, too. So, like, it doesn't even establish, like, the same canon from book to book. So, who knows? He could be the bus driver in the next book. He could be, uh, I don't know, their manager. <laughs> I can't remember. They just throw stuff around. Uh, but also, there is a description of Ned uh, from, I guess, the narrator. He looked a little like Santa Claus if Santa hung out in a motorcycle gang, which I thought was very appropriate because we interviewed Dave Squatch Ward and he said in his interview, he had played Santa a couple of times. And he also said that he had played uh, motorcycle gang members a couple of times too, like bikers. So um, that stuck out to me as well. I thought that was funny. Yeah. Basically they get to uh, Chicago and, you know, they're having a little spat about bug duty and the bugs on the front of the bus. Um, oh, oh yeah. Lots of detail on, about bug duty in the book. <laughs> I mean, I know um, it happens in the actual episode, but it's here. Yeah. I just wanted to comment that they're getting so grossed out by it, but I'm like, you've been on tour for a year now. Wouldn't you be used to doing this already? Even though it is kind of gross. It's like if you're a seasoned dog owner and you have to clean up after them. It's gross, but at that point, you've pretty much got to be used to it. Yeah, I, I don't know. All I can figure is that writer of this thought like, okay, well, this is a book targeted towards young children. This kind of like gross, goofy humor makes young children laugh. So I'm just going to focus on that for about half a page. But yeah, I thought the inordinate amount of detail spent on bug duty was kind of weird. And then around that scene as well, when Fee makes a comment about how she just wants to go and sleep on the bus, there's a line about how mom, the girlfriend instantly disappeared, replaced by mom, the mother. And I thought that was a much better descriptor than trying to pass Molly off as looking like their big sister, because she and Fee really do have a close relationship where they seem almost like friends at points. Yeah. And there's more about that later in the story. Um, they talk more about Molly and Fee being more like friends at times. So then moving on to the tutoring scene when Ned is tutoring the kids, we get a little extra detail in here about Jack saying that he sighed dramatically but didn't say anymore. Too bad mom wasn't their tutor. He could snow her easy anytime, anywhere, but not Ned. And that gave me pause because Jack doesn't really seem like the type to manipulate Molly. Jack always seemed like the nerd he would study and do his best. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, these books do switch perspectives away from Fee at times. And I don't know if it works too well or if it feels very sincere or true to their characters when they do. Um, so yeah, probably not there. <laughs> that surprised me because, you know, I don't know if anybody else in the call has done like a lot of writing themselves. But one of the first rules you learn when you're 
doing work as a writer is that you try to avoid what they call head hopping as much as possible. Like you try to stick to one perspective, even when you're writing in the third person, it's this kind of sloppy, confusing writing to jump around like that. And I noticed that they do that several times throughout this book. And it just, again, you know, just maybe not a lot of oversight when it comes to a project like this. You know? Yeah. <laughs> oh, I kind of felt like I was getting whiplash reading this book. Oh my goodness. If you all are saying that now, just wait till Strangeling. It's like every other line. It's ridiculous. Yeah. Are there any uh, scenes from the perspective of the dragon in Strangeling? There could be. Uh, I mean, spoiler <laughs> warning. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> After that, Molly is talking to Jack. And so we get some of Molly's thoughts as well. And she mentions that just like his dad, he's a charmer. And uh, she says, sometimes it was hard to get a si- serious answer out of Jack. At least he had become that way ever since his dad died. Jack could always make her laugh just like his dad. So I, I kind of liked this because, you know, there's a whole scene or several scenes in the show about how Fee is just like Rick. You know, she has a list of ways that they're like, but it's nice to learn maybe how Jack could be like Rick as well. Okay, and then again, here's one of those weird perspective things where it changes perspective. So we get the perspective of the club manager who doesn't matter at all, you know, (laughs) and it says that, you know, when Fee's asking all these questions. So it says the club manager eyed her suspiciously. He wasn't used to so many questions. It made him nervous. And how did this kid get in here anyway? Why do we need to know what he's thinking? I mean, yeah. And another thing we actually um, do we learn the name of the club owner in the TV show? Because they yeah. actually mention it here in the book. They we did they did say his name on the show? Yeah. Oh, okay. All right. Well. I can't remember what it was, but um it's like B, this is so and so. He's the owner of this club. Oh yeah. Bellevue. Okay. Yeah, yeah, Mr. Bellevue. Yeah. Yeah. And actually, I guess one thing we didn't make note of was in the book, he actually doesn't allow her into his office. He slams the door in her face, but that doesn't happen in the episode. I read that and I'm like, yeah, I can see that happening. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that seemed pretty realistic to me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so this part pretty much plays out just the same way that you see it in the TV show. But what I like is that after the scene with Mr. Bellevue, we have this little bit of an interlude of he going back to her hotel room where she takes out her laptop. And in this book, it kind of gives you the feeling that he isn't entirely happy on the road where sometimes it's great, but other times it's not so fun and she can't really remember why she enjoys it to begin with. And she has this one line that no matter where she was, no matter what kind of room she checked into, when she turned on her computer and logged onto the internet, she was home. And that line really resonated with me and it seemed like something that's very relatable to most of us who grew up going on the internet and making friends through message boards and communities online and social media now. Yeah, and that was, like I said earlier, I was really hoping we would have a lot more insight into Fiona's personality in this book. And uh, that was one of the moments where we actually do get a little more insight into her uh, inner thoughts and stuff. So that part I did enjoy. Yeah, and then after this, we get another break for Brian's point of view in Chapter 5, where he's hailing the Eastland as the most beautiful ship he's ever seen, dreaming about working on it as an adult, waiting in line to get on. And I guess this is all just part of humanizing him and reminding us that this was an actual real person with hopes and dreams. But to me, it just kind of distracted from Fee. 
And another thing I wonder is, um, is it possible that these scenes were included to make the book kind of educational? I mean, I know there was a lot of children's programming around the time that was sort of attempting to both entertain and become educational. So I was just wondering if maybe that was included as a way to add a little more historical educational element to the book. I don't know, but I wondered that. That makes sense to me. I mean, even like video games back then that were geared towards children, a lot of them had to find some kind of educational element to it. So I see that happening with this book as well. Okay. You, you just had a few extra notes here, Kat. So yeah. what else did you have to say? Okay. So after the interlude from Brian, we cut back to Fee. We actually see her get a soda, which is exciting because she just randomly has a soda in the episode. And now we get a little backstory to it. And we also have this scene where dinner for Fee and her family was room service food laid out in the sitting room of their hotel suite. Good luck getting something halfway decent for the crew scarfed it all down and sit wherever you could find a spot. And I thought that description was kind of interesting because I noticed the book mentions the roadies more often than we really see them in the TV show. There was another line earlier where Molly muses that the crew members were kind of like second uncles to Jack and Faye. And it's like, we never see that on the show. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of cool to imagine like what kind of antics they get up to together. Speaking of which, I have a question. Mm -hmm. How do they travel if they're not on the bus? Are they on a different bus? Yeah, I think they're supposed to be like on a second bus, but we just never see it. Which has me thinking about like, what's the budget for this tour? I mean, especially since we always get the impression that the Molly comeback tour is kind of a low budget affair. And it's like, well, it can't be that much, that low budget if there's a second bus for the crew. They're ordering all this room service. (laughs) (laughs) So now um, Fee's back on the bus, I guess, uh, you know, and she's doing research. This is when she's, you know, putting out questions to her followers about anyone knowing anything about the Chicago fire. Yeah. And that's when Molly comes in, uh, like on the show. And uh, there's a line of when she enters the room, Molly enters Fee's room on the bus. She says, hey, her mom said from the doorway as if everything were groovy, as her mom liked to say. And I just can't imagine Molly saying that word seriously. Um, <laughs> I don't know. No, she would not. Again, I feel like she's thinking, oh, she's really popular in the 70s, like she said earlier, the author. And um, well, she's also popular in the 80s. So yeah, Groovy just doesn't doesn't mean she's stuck in the 70s. Yeah, yeah, exactly. This seems a little more fleshed out in the book, which I appreciate. What did you have to say about it, Lauren? Oh, yeah, I wrote this long thing. <laughs> so the passage goes, Fee's mom really was her best friend in the universe. Hey, probably her only real girlfriend. It was hard to have a best friend when you move to a different city every night or two. And Fee really, really needs to talk to somebody about what she's seen. And I felt like this did a good job of highlighting, I think maybe more of an unspoken part about this whole series, which is that Jack has clue to hang out with. B doesn't really have someone her own age. And you might argue, well, she has Candy, but Candy isn't there with her in person. Molly's really like the only other figure that she can turn to, both as her mom and the occasional best friend. But it's that balance that Molly tries to maintain that doesn't always do the best of job when trying to, you know, have a relationship with her daughter. 
And as a result, it often leads to her not validating Pete's experience to the fullest instead of just kind of half-assing it. She's mm-hmm. only contributing to the conflict that remains imminent throughout the show's run. And, you know, without doubt, it, I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that she has a lot of unresolved trauma. We, she lost her husband under really unfortunate circumstances. And, you know, there's also that whole backstory about her having to deal with alcoholism that we never see fleshed out, of course. Um, but, you know, because of this trauma remaining unresolved, I can sympathize her to some extent, but because she's not really doing anything to address it, that I can, she's really only making things more difficult for Katie. Wow, that was quite a point to make there. And um, yeah, I think you expressed it really well. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, I've always had complex thoughts and feelings about Molly. But I agree, if you're viewing it from the perspective of Fee, of Molly, you know, not just being Fee's mom, but also our best friend, um, does she give Fee that support that she needs when, in these kinds of moments? Um, and is she even able to do that? I don't know. I, I think that that's, that's a really good point. You know, I mean, that is a good point. I mean, I think it is important to remember that Molly is processing her own grief. And mm-hmm. um, I, I mean, you know, it, it's funny. I just rewatched Upa yesterday. And not to go totally off topic, but I mean, that that episode is a great example of how much that Molly is not really processed her grief about, you know, the death of her husband at all. Like, it really is still very much an active, ongoing thing for her. And I just can't imagine how hard it must be to raise two kids while still dealing with those feelings. And mind you, you know, this is in the era before mental health was treated as seriously as it is now. But even still, it's like when you have something that's, clearly affecting you, you should probably do something about it. And, you know, and Fee is really young. She's in her early teens at this point. And so for her to be receiving this message of, I can't turn to anyone about anything I'm seeing, then that's kind of giving her the message of, I need to just keep everything to myself, which can lead to some really harmful long-term effects for Fee. Yeah, you're definitely right about that. I'm not a sociologist, I should probably say. This is just... Stuff I picked up on over time. No, I think that that's an excellent point. <laughs> like I was not expecting anyone to make such a point about this after reading this book <laughs> about the characters <laughs> and coming. <laughs> but I, I really appreciate that perspective. That was that was brilliant. I guess we're back on Brian's perspective now. Yep. So after Molly and Fee's heart to heart, just as we saw in the TV show, we have that scene where the haunted photograph shows up on her laptop and crashes her computer and makes it have a waterfall and all that good stuff. And then we jump to a chapter where once again, we're in Brian's perspective. And this is where it actually gets interesting and where it won me over to showing Brian's perspective. Because Brian notices the ship listing and his father reassures him that, oh, this is normal. The crew knows what they're doing. And Brian takes a look around and he notices that nobody else in the crowd seemed to pay attention to the movements. He relaxed and quit worrying. And this was probably the most horrifying points in the story to me, TV version or book version. Because like trusting your gut is so vital and to see Brian know in his heart that something's wrong and then take a look at what everybody else is doing and be like, nah, I gotta be wrong. That's scary when you don't trust your gut and it leads to a fatal mistake. Yeah, definitely. I also made note about this perspective. I I think this was one of the most horrifying perspectives as well. Brian does get on the ship, uh, but basically it was a near miss. So he says, 
Brian could hardly believe it if not for those two young couples leaving the line to join their friends. Um, he and his family might have missed their chance to sail on the Eastland altogether. And, um, you know, I have to be honest, like watching the, sh- the episode discuss the Eastland, I wasn't necessarily inspired to look up more information about it. But reading this, these perspectives in the book, I was interested enough to actually go to the eastlanddisaster.org website. And you can see all kinds of different perspectives from people um, who survived and also um, learn more about the people who died and you know, this is really what happened. They really did fill up and there are people who missed their shot at going on the Eastland and and survived, but there are other people who just made it on who died, you know? So it's really sad. Okay. But what the book really inspired me to want to look up, and I'm going to Google this after we get done recording here, is when uh, Fiona searches Chicago slash drownings on a web engine, the second thing that comes up after great chicago fire is shantytown blaze of 42 and i just want to know if that was a real thing or not (laughs) i don't know you didn't look it up i know well well shit i'm sitting right here in front of a computer right now let me just uh Mm, i don't know shantytown blaze of 42 Okay, I don't see anything. Right yeah, that, that okay. So that that's made up. All right, good to know. Now I don't feel guilty <laughs> for laughing about the string of words shantytown blaze of forty two. So after Brian's perspective, uh, I guess it goes back to Jack. We get some of his yes. perspective again in the hotel room. Yeah. So this is the classic clue eating a burrito sickle scene. Mm-hmm. So we get this description of the boys hotel room and this paragraph just kind of made me mad almost. It says <laughs> that Jack enjoyed the disarray. He felt it was his civic duty as a teenage boy to wreck any room he slept in. <laughs> After all, that was one of the coolest things about staying in a good oh, hotel. No. Here in the oh, hotel, okay. he and Clue could be total slobs and their moms never bugged them to clean their room. And it's like, wow, Jack comes off as such an asshole here. And so does Molly and Irene for letting them get away with that. That's not cool. That's yeah, not the yeah. Jack I know and love. Pity the poor room service uh, maids that work in that hotel. Yeah, because uh, I don't, you know, like I said, I didn't get a chance to rewatch the episode. Is Jack and Clue's hotel room especially messy in that scene? No, it is. it's not. I rewatched the episode just the other night and I'm like, this doesn't look messy at all. What did he do? Misplace a bar of soap? It is interesting, though, because in Rebecca, Jack's room is a mess. Oh. And Molly comes into the hotel room. But he seemed ashamed of it there because he put the yeah. dishes under the his bed. So, mm-hmm. yeah. So, like, he at least had an ounce of shame in the TV show. Here, it was like, no, he just owns it. Well, just the author expanding a little bit more on the, uh, the story there. Mm-hmm. And taking liberties with Jack that I wish they hadn't taken because I love Jack so much. And then speaking of Jack, when they sneak in to the club, Jack's a scaredy cat in the book. And I never got that from him in the TV show. There's a passage that says, Fee grin in the dark. So her brother, the big mouth, was nervous, huh? What little sister could resist having fun with that? And that's what prompts Fee to say, you know what? They used to store dead bodies in this place. And I never really understood why Fee brought that up in the TV show. So I do like that this gives context to it. But I hate that they characterize Jack as being scared. Because I could see Jack as subtly being scared. But for Fiona to pick up on it, like something's wrong. That is not my boy, Jack. 
Yeah, I thought that was kind of an odd choice, too, because like Jack is the skeptic, you know, he doesn't believe in ghosts. So why would that spook him? Yeah, I just thought that was an odd, odd decision. I I did watch the episode after reading this and I was I was actually paying attention to him in these scenes. He doesn't look particularly scared like he doesn't look any more scared than Clue or Fee and in the book it almost makes out to seem like he is the most scared of the three or right yeah. and in the and in the show the most he's scared of is a rat whereas here it makes him sound like he's actually scared of a haunting that he's telling himself isn't real but it makes it seem like he's afraid that it is mm-hmm. it could be that's what's happening internally and we just don't know it from watching the episode yeah I think there's also a line in the book though about him actually going after them you know when they leave the hotel room and it's like he's so scared he he can't even stay in his hotel room by himself or something right that's not that's not why jack left the hotel room he left the hotel room probably to make sure he didn't get into too much trouble i mean that's my perspective on things at least okay so it talks about fee being scared as well how she gets through that and i think you commented on this as well lauren Yeah, she deals with a lot of creepy stuff and occasionally dangerous as well. And I think that with this line, well, okay, let me just read the passage. It says, was be scared? Definitely. She got spooked as easily as the next person. But her fascination with the paranormal gave her the courage to keep going, even when her knees were knocking in fear. I think that line alone did a good job of showing her perseverance to continue investigating. Um, And there's just something about seeing her in that light that, you know, really makes her all the more of the strong protagonist that she is. Yeah, and then we also got a little bit more context as the kids are exploring the building where after Fee discovers the hidden room behind the wall where the boy drags her over to, Clue goes, well, come on, maybe we can get him from underneath. And we get this little description of the kids going downstairs into a dressing room and Jack and Clue boosting Fee up into a hole in the ceiling before pulling themselves up. And I thought that was pretty cool because in the TV show, we don't really see exactly how they got into that room. We see that they climb in there somehow, but we don't know like how they figured out where to go. And then um, Fee and Jack have their moment where, you know, well, basically they're talking about Rick dying and how he won't come back. You know, that's Jack's perspective. And he's like, you know, I'll never believe it or, or you know how it goes. Um, but in the book, it gives a little more description. So um, it says they stared at each other a moment in the ghostly light, miles apart, siblings separated by a pain that should have brought them together. But both kids were stubborn, a lot like their dad had been. Molly was fond of telling them neither would budge an inch. So again, this gives us a little more insight into how Jack and Fee are like Rick. I mean, we kind of already knew this from the show, you know, with Nightmare. Because you see how determined Rick is to uncover the truth. And we know that uh, Jack and Fee are pretty stubborn like that as well. But still, I liked that line. Yeah, I thought that was a really powerful line. And then after Jack and Fee have their little argument, there's a line that says, Clue had been silent during his friend's confrontation. He didn't take sides, but he didn't follow Jack back downstairs either. And this just set my shipper heart alight because Clue... (laughs) you guys there's a hint <laughs> but i thought you didn't shift them cat anymore that's what you were saying earlier this rekindles feelings for me <laughs> does uh clue and fiona have a cute couple portmanteau name you know cluona or something like that clue clue 
We couldn't Cluey. decide whether it should be Cluey or Flu, so now it's both. <laughs> Cluey Flu. Okay, great. It seems yeah. like Clue is very much the middleman, even though he does spend a lot of time with Jack. But I think this is one of those instances where I'm like, nah, man, you're on your own. I'm going to be here with your sister. Yeah. And then they get a jab in at HBO, I guess. <laughs> yeah, kids, don't watch HBO. Watch the Disney Channel. <laughs> um, what was that you noted, Lauren? Yeah, I was wondering why. Why the jab at HBO? What were they showing back then that wasn't worth anyone's time? Well, the answer to the why is that, you know, they had 141 pages to fill. So they had to put something <laughs> there. I didn't watch HBO until, like, I never watched HBO at hotels. I, I, I could only watch HBO within the last 10 years or so. So I have no idea. I still I don't assumed- watch HBO. <laughs> <laughs> I assume that because at the time period, remember, like, this is before everybody had 800 channels on their television. Like, if you could get HBO on cable, like, that was a big deal to have, like, a movie channel. At least it was when I was a kid. So for some people, like, you go to a hotel and you get access to HBO for the first time, and that's exciting. So after that... The ghost boy leads them to that room and everything starts to tip over. So at that point, the book changes perspective to Brian's point of view. You know, it's actually gives, again, more context into what happened right before the Eastland tipped over. But I didn't know how historically accurate it was. Uh, it mentions, for example, a band playing music to distract the passengers, which uh, if you've seen Titanic or heard about Titanic, you, you know that is straight from Titanic. I know there was a band on the Eastland, but I don't know if that's something that the band did. I, I tried to find out more information about that. There's just, uh, you know, if you go to the eastlanddisaster.org website, Again, there's all kinds of perspectives, uh, firsthand accounts of this disaster, but I couldn't find anything in particular about a band playing music, to be honest with you. And I appreciated the um, the detail that was added to that. Yeah. This yeah, and the chapter... chapter that I liked because yeah. it gave us details of the actual disaster. Like I was a kid who was terrified and fascinated by Titanic. This would have been right up my alley then too. Yeah, I thought that was, um, that chapter was pretty well written. It did not occur to me until maybe this part of the book where I realized that maybe the creative team was inspired by the film Titanic, because that came out a little over a year before So Weird premiered. And so Mm -hmm. I can't help but wonder that what if we took a similar disaster from that same era, but not actually have it be Titanic? Because I think if they actually did the Titanic, I think that might have been a little too on the nose. Yeah, I always thought they based it on Titanic. Even when I was a little kid and I didn't realize that this was its own real historical event, I thought they based it on Titanic and that they just made their own boat. Yeah, that seems pretty likely. You know, I really hadn't thought about that, but Titanic was such a big deal back then. And so that, that rings true to me, what you all are saying, for sure. And another thing about going into the next chapter, the um, the literary version here of the sequence where the stuff is flying through the air and the room is tilting sideways, it's a little more detailed. And I think that's, again, just the difference between a book where you can write whatever you want and there's no limits on the imagination and a low-budget television show where they have pretty limited resources for what they're, they can actually show on screen. So I appreciated that there was a little more detail in the the more fantastical moments. So, 
And I could see, you know, if you're a, a really, you're a really young kid reading this back in 2000, it would maybe give you a, a little case of the spookies, maybe. Uh, Lauren, I think you noted a, a parallel between this scene that maybe you didn't realize in the show with right. the season two finale. Yeah. Yeah, it's when Fee is seeing the boy reach out to his parents. And we already know, it's, we could take a guess of what he's saying, but to actually see the dialogue written down, that's when it clicked with me, like, this kind of parallels the season two finale when Fee is hanging out the ledge of the building. Of course, the difference here is the outcome. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I wonder if that parallel was intended all by the team. You know, I had not noted that parallel until... Uh... I think Betsy pointed it out on like the Tumblr page at some point had not even crossed my mind. (laughs) How many times have I watched this show? But yeah, I mean, now I'm wondering the same thing. Was that intended? The pilot was not written by John Cooksey and Allie Marie Matheson. They had no hand in it, but maybe they considered that when uh, giving writing notes for twin to the writer for twin. I don't know. Well, that would have been a good question to ask. uh... Cooksey or Allie Marie when we had them on the show, but <laughs> uh, I, I feel like it, it had to have been a coincidence. That just has that that just feels like it was a coincidence to me. Yeah, I agree. I think that's more likely to be a coincidence, but it's a very cool artistic coincidence. That yeah, that's one of those things that was definitely on accident. That the writer says, um, "Yeah, we did that on purpose. Totally, totally did that on purpose." <laughs> I mean, they had to have watched the first episode just to see what they were getting into. So you never know. So after the boy falls, just like in the show, Fee gets his jacket. And I realized watching the episode that the writer of this book misspelled Ryan's last name. So in the in the episode, it's Ryan McGevely. And in the book, it's Ryan McGively or Brian, sorry, Brian McGively. And in the show, it's Brian McGovely. And I looked at both of those names on the Eastland disaster website just to see if, you know, that was actually a real name of someone who had passed away on the Eastland and no, it was not. But still, she botched that. Sloppy, sloppy work, Kathy East Dabowski. <laughs> you made another note before we move on to the graveyard, I believe, Lauren. Yeah, when B. Jack and Clue fall through the ceiling. Mm-hmm. Well, and they catch B. I'm surprised that there was never any legal action made towards Molly and her team because that's a historical building. I'm just surprised (laughs) that there were never any consequences from that. (laughs) Good point. So I don't know when it mentions that the next tour stop is Bardo, Wyoming. Is this like the beginning of the graveyard? Like before they actually get there, if he's talking about, oh, now we're done with Chicago and we're going on to Bardo, you know, a new city. I don't know what page exactly they mentioned, but I, I noticed that as well. And I just thought that was a weirdly specific thing to mention. Like what, what's in Bardo? Yeah. So it's actually the setting for the escape book. And I can't remember if they mentioned Bardo in the episode as it being like the high school. I don't know. But the escape book is book three. It's not the second book. So when she says the next tour stop is Bardo, that's actually book three. Now, Shelter, the book for sacrifice, comes before that. And so we know that they're on vacation in that book, going camping. But then it's like, I don't know, they just waste a lot of gas, you know, because they're in Chicago and then they go to Tennessee and then they drive out to Wyoming. 
I just wanted to point out as well. So she does say that Bardo is next, but in the production order for the actual episodes, Escape was supposed to come second after Family Reunion. So it's like, I don't know. At this point, the book was published a year after the first episode, wasn't it? Or did I say over a year? So I don't know what was going through her head when she wrote that, but it's in line with the production order of the show, at least. All right. And then we have the graveyard scene where Molly, Irene, and Ned leave and Jack and Thea are left by themselves. And we have this line that Jack didn't particularly like graveyards. They made him think about things, things he didn't want to think about. And this struck me as probably the most true to Jack line in the book. And it also gave me some serious nightmare vibes because we all know that Jack's nightmare was the graveyard where his father was buried. That's right. Yeah, I didn't even think of it in that way. I did not either. Very good point. And then we get a little bit more of an insight into Jack and Fee's relationship where it says that he felt most comfortable when they were either picking on each other or joking around. It was so much easier than the heavy stuff. And then Fee looked into his dark eyes, dark brown like hers, like their dad's. She didn't speak, but something passed between them, brother and sister. Things unspoken, but understood. Things that no words could could express. And like, this provides a really good context for Jack and Fee's sibling relationship. And even though it's a little bit of a continuity error because Jack's eyes are really blue and Fee's are more of like a greenish brown, it is a really sweet moment that captures that look that they give each other in the end of the scene. But then it also says that Fee smiles after he says, I think about him too, you know, which is not what she does in the episode. Yeah. All right. You know, there's just some creative license there. It's okay. So does that wrap us up or, you know, is no. there... <laughs> Lauren had a couple notes about the ending. There's this passage. But after this, learning history would never be the same. To Fee, history could never again be just names and dates in a dusty old book, mere facts and memorize for a multiple choice quiz. She understood now that history was the story of people's lives, just as her life would be a part of that story. Okay, two things. It's insightful, but why is she coming to this realization now when it already seems apparent that this isn't the first time she's encountered the paranormal? And, you know, part of what makes this show so intriguing is that a lot of the paranormal phenomena featured is referred to from real-life occurrences, or at least documented as such. And also, like, it's a callback to what was happening earlier during the tutoring scene about, you know, why should I learn history? It already happened. But the thing is, Jack is the one who is verbalizing that question. That wasn't B. If anything, I think B is more conscious of why history matters. Yeah, I feel like it was something that was added in to try to make the book more quasi-educational. Perhaps, yeah. yeah. But I do feel like earlier in the book as well, they did mention like, he was like, for once, uh, this could be my chance to finally get real evidence or whatever. And I'm like, I don't know. It just made it seem like this was one of these first real adventures. And I don't know if I, I believe that. But do you think Fiona had um, encounters with the paranormal before this episode? <laughs> I feel like it because, you know, her website is supposed to be about her, her real life experiences right so we don't know that we i mean it's literally the start of the series emily (laughs) at some point she saw a blimp and thought it was a ufo Hmm. so i'm assuming that took place before family reunion true well her website is pretty well established that's one thing and then another thing is from earlier when jack is just blowing up at her he says 
remember what he says? He says, I hate this. I hate that you keep doing this, which means mm-hmm. this isn't the first time this has happened. True. Hmm. When did it start happening? Okay. That's an idea for a fanfic. Someone get into that. Figure yes. out when this the, all started for Fee. The secret origins of Fiona's paranormal obsession. That's something I've been dying to know. And I was hoping that maybe the book would address, but it didn't, is how did Fee get into the paranormal if she didn't know that her dad was into it? Like if someone said, you only get one question for John Cooksey, go for it. That's what I would ask them. Because we know she doesn't like Halloween. Like that's how a lot of kids get into it is they like Halloween and then they start looking into the stuff related to Halloween, but he's not into it. So I don't know. And one more comment you had, Lauren? Yeah. This is a good question. What the offer (laughs) brings up her laptop. I just want to know, how did she explain what happened to it? Just some minor poltergeist activity, mom. That's all it was. Project soda droning. Mm. <laughs> Maybe Molly would just like, I don't want to know. <laughs> well, I think that's the end of our comments on this book. So, um, you know, any additional thoughts you all have overall? Well, like I said, I think I said most of my piece at the beginning of the episode, but, um, you know, the writing is pretty simplistic. I mean, obviously it's pitched at a, a younger audience. You know, but it was interesting. It made me want to read the rest of the books. I'll tell you that. Really? That's good. Yeah. Yeah, and I've always been curious about it, so I'm glad I read it, too. Yeah. I think for me, um, I, I have read all the books. And so for me, this book is the one that is, like, the most like the episode, from what I remember. Just the dialogue is almost word for word the episode. So it, it is a bit of a struggle to get through in that sense, because you're like, uh, if you've watched the episodes as much as I have, then you can practically, you know, know what dialogue is coming on the next page word for word. But I think the Brian's, the Ghost Boys perspectives do add something that I appreciate about this take on the story. Emily, since you've read the other books, how does this one hold up compared to the other ones quality-wise? Well, I mean, really, like I said, I I do feel like it's my least favorite from what I remember. It's hard to really remember. My favorite one was the shelter book, which is not on the episode shelter. It's on sacrifice episode um, because that one also has different perspectives of uh, it's got the perspective of the union soldier uh, which i thought was really really cool i was but, hoping you were going to say that it has perspectives from bigfoot no no bigfoot <laughs> oh sorry spoilers guys but um i to be honest it's been so long i can't remember but i'm going to reread them all with everyone so i'm looking forward to that anything else we want to throw out there just that reading it is a really fun experience. Book-wise, it's not the best read because it does give you whiplash with how often it jumps from character to character and just how simplistic it is. But as a So Weird fan, it is really interesting to see another take on the characters and to get to explore their world a little bit more. So I'm mm-hmm. really glad I read it. I guess uh, for me, I, I think I said this a while ago, you know, the books now they're going, (laughs) people are buying them now back, back when I first, you know, was talking about them. I was like, you know, it's a nice thing to have, you know, 
it's like one of the few things we have from the show that actually is, is physical. It really is the only physical evidence we have of the show's existence. So, you know, the first book is nice because it does have that, that iconic photo of the Phillips and Clue on the cover and the, the tour bus. So if, if you were going to get any of the books, again, I would probably recommend this one just for the cover. But uh, yeah, I think the other ones are, are probably of a better quality story-wise everyone's buying the books now on eBay and there are people who are still, like I said, they, they had no idea these books existed. So I, well, now, you know, and if you do give it a read, let us know what you think. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Yeah. And I just want to say that the price tag on the back of my copy says uh, four ninety nine, and I paid a, like a dollar more than that. So um, <laughs> they have that the prices have not gone up that much since 2000. I paid like eight bucks. Really? Was maybe it was eight. I don't know. It wasn't that much though. <laughs> it was very reasonable. Wait a minute, where did you buy your copies? I got it off of the same eBay link that uh, Emily sent me in the group chat. Did I send you? <laughs> I thought it was you. I I don't think it was me. Maybe it was Melissa. Oh, uh, uh, I don't what, know who it was. Todd, was yours through eBay? Yeah, eBay. Oh wow. I think I paid I think more for my copy than any of you. Where'd you get it? Amazon. Okay. See, that was your first mistake. (laughs) Yeah, I got all my books for Christmas over five years ago now. And um, I think mom said she paid maybe $10 for all five. So, Oh my God, she got a good deal. (laughs) Yeah, well, that was when no one was buying them. (laughs) So uh, yeah, I I did look out. But anyway, so we've covered family reunion and um, we will continue with more book discussions. I think the next book uh, will not be the next episode of the podcast. We're probably going to go into some other, other topics that people were interested in us discussing, but we will definitely get back and do another book discussion soon. Lauren, it was so great to have you on. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah. Thank you for having me on. This has been fun. Yeah, and we yeah, really it was so appreciate exciting it. having you on. And we, sure. we really, as always, appreciate your support. You've been amazing all these years. So thank you so much. Yeah, definitely. This has been the So Weird Podcast. I'm Emily. I'm Kat. I'm Zach. And I'm Lauren. Keep the faith, everyone.